Glory to God. What amazing music. What a great time of worship. God is good all the time. Let's pray together. Father, we come now to the fount of every blessing. Every good and perfect gift comes from you. This gift of worship, the gift of beautiful instrumentation, the gift of voices lifted to you. All this ability comes to us from you. And so, Lord, it is fitting and right for us to give this back to you. Because as we have sung this morning, you are worthy of everything we have to offer. And Lord, we, we echo these words. We, we hear the Apostle Paul say, the things I want to do, I don't do. And the things I don't want to do, I do. And we hear in this song, prone to wander. Lord, we feel it. We are prone by birth to leave the God we love. But thank you for new birth that seals our hearts for you and for your courts above. And I pray today, God, that you would give us some truth that will help us to take a few more steps on the journey home with you. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, death is in the news this week. Like you, I have been uh, shocked to read about the events in Oslo, Norway, the home of the Nobel Prize for Peace. And just, just reading that story and the first reports that this man claimed to be a right-wing Christian, though what he did was anything but Christian, can we agree, that, he, that what he did was anything but Christian, and then to, to hear about a train crash in China and um, a singer in England whose music I really never listened to, but who was so much larger than life that we could not be unaware of her who lost her battle apparently with drug addiction. And I was reminded again that, that death is with us. Some years ago, Slate asked their readers to respond to a survey about grief and loss. How many people would you expect would respond to such a survey? Fully 10,000 responded. 78% were women. Um, they, this may suggest that females read Slate or, or, or that more women feel free to discuss issues around grief and loss. 33% said they had lost their loved one at least eight years before. 60% said they still dream about the one that they love. Only 7% said that they felt they had received adequate support in their time of grief. Nearly 30% said that their grief was with them almost all the time. 13% said their grief was with them all the time. Nearly 25% said their life has never returned to normal. And another 25% said it took a year or two. What do we learn from those statistics? Well, certainly we learn that one of the hardest things about grief is the sense that, that we're grieving alone. The sense that some expect us to grieve, but not to grieve too long. It may be as simple as our human need to feel we are not alone when grief gets unbearable. And I don't want to be morbid this morning as if I could talk to you about dealing with death without being morbid. I don't want to be morbid this morning, but I wonder how does your family deal with death? 
Let's take a look at the Abraham family, the Jacob generation. Genesis chapter 35. We left off last week with verse 7. We'll pick up with verse 8. I'll read verses 16 through 19 and 27 through 29. Just um, six or seven verses together today, seven or eight verses. Let's stand together as we read God's word. Genesis chapter 35, verse 8. Now Deborah, Rebekah's nurse, died and was buried under the oak below Bethel. So it was named Alan Bakuth. Then in verse 16, then they moved on from Bethel, and while they were still some distance from Ephrath, Rachel began to give birth and had great difficulty. And as she was having great difficulty in childbirth, the midwife said to her, don't be afraid, for you have another son And as she breathed her last, for she was dying, she named her son Ben-Oni, but his father named him Benjamin. So Rachel died and was buried on the way to Ephrath, that is Bethlehem. And over her tomb, Jacob set up a pillar. And to this day, that pillar marks Rachel's tomb. That in verse 27 Jacob came home to his father Isaac in Mamre near Kiriath Arba, that is Hebron, where Abraham and Isaac had stayed. Isaac lived 180 years. Then he breathed his last and died and was gathered to his people, old and full of years. And his sons Esau and Jacob buried him. You may be seated. Troubles come not as isolated events in our lives, but have you noticed that troubles come more often than not in herds? They come in groups, and there is often this confluence of painful events that come together, and none of us deals with those events alone. We know Jacob has his whole family with him, his 11 sons and his daughter and his two wives and his two concubines, and they have just been in the presence of God. For heaven's sake, they have just left all of their idols behind. They have come back to the house of God and gotten their hearts right with the Lord. And even as they begin to process the fullness of God's presence, right there, Deborah, Rebecca's nurse, dies and they bury her beneath an oak tree and call it Alan Bakuth, the oak of weeping. It's not long after that as they head out of Bethel that they're headed up from Bethel to Bethlehem. Ephrath is the old name for Bethlehem. And as they're on their way up, Rachel goes into labor and inexplicably She loses her life and names the child that is born son of my sorrow. And Jacob renames him son of my right hand. But he puts up a pillar for his beloved wife. And when the writing is done, the pillar is still there. Not long after that, he comes 
to his father's house. It's the first time he's come home to his dad. And not long after that, we may infer from the text, his father went home to be with the Lord. Deaths come in various shapes and sizes. They're they're not identical, are they? I have walked with you and cared for your souls as you have cared for my soul long enough to know not all deaths are the same. Sometimes death is that which comes like a thief in the night, stealing from us our best beloved, as the poet John Donne said, soonest our best with thee do go, poor death. Death, you take our best first sometimes. And I've walked through those unexpected deaths with you, those tragic deaths with you. And I've also walked with you through deaths where in some ways, can we just agree that for the person who's been suffering for a season and the suffering seemed interminable, that the death comes as somewhat of a relief I call you sometimes when you lose somebody you love and I say, I heard that you lost a parent or a friend. I call you sometimes and I never know what tone to take when I call because I don't know the circumstances of the death. But many times you will say to me, you know, pastor, thank you for calling, but it's, it's just in some ways for our family a grace that our loved one has gotten to go home Deaths come in in various shapes and sizes. And what we learn about, about death is that it is inevitable. It comes into our lives sometimes when we cannot anticipate it. And, and whether or not we like it, we have to deal with grief. We have to deal with death. I've been reading family systems and in, sort of the beginning of that family systems therapy, the original writer says, there are families that are closed systems who never talk about anything. And there are families that are open systems who talk about everything. And the open systems deal with grief better. But if we don't deal with death, then there is what he calls this emotional shockwave that goes through our family. And it may not surface In the first month or the first year, it may not surface for a number of years, but somehow, let me put it this way, if we don't learn in our families to deal with grief, grief will someday deal with us. We have to deal with death because life leaves us no choice in rapid fire succession, three deaths in this family. Will you just look at them with me this morning and consider first the the death of a great family friend. What makes Deborah's death significant, and it's the only time we ever read her name, we read about her, I think, in Genesis 24, 59, where it says when Rebecca left her brother Laban and her family, she, she came to Isaac's home with an entourage She brought her nurse with her, it says. And Deborah came. What makes this death so significant? What what causes them to rename the place and that tree, Alon Bakuth, the Oak of Weeping, is that Deborah was a trusted family friend who had sort of been with them through it all. Somebody calculated, these numbers are staggering to us, that she had been with the family for 150 years at this point. 
Just think about the friends that you've had for 15 years, 150 years. And so when she, when she dies, there is this grief, but it's bigger than that. As I read the text, if you'll give me license this morning, I think it's bigger than that because it's not that it says it's Deborah, but it said it says it's Deborah, the nurse of Rebecca, which makes this so very hard. You know why? Because nowhere in this book, I searched it this week, do we ever find out about Rebecca's death. We know about Abraham's death. We know about Abraham's father's death. We know about Abraham's wife's death. We know about Isaac's death. We don't know anything about Rebecca's death. And we may surmise from the narrative that when Jacob left home, sent by his mother, she was the only one in the world, as far as he knew, who loved him. And before he comes home, she is gone. So when he went away, he, he left behind the only one who had ever loved him and he never saw her again. And can you imagine Deborah becoming something of a surrogate for him, his mother's nurse? I don't have mom. I don't have Rebecca, but I have Deborah. And then she dies. And all of the grief that he feels about being separated from his mother is transferred to this loss. And when they bury her under that tree, they rename the place, which is always a moment of significance in the text to say, this is an oak of weeping. This is a significant death in this family. Have you lived long enough to realize that sometimes it's the death of our friends that are even harder than the death of our family members? And, and if you ever get guilt mixed up with your grief, it is, it is absolutely bad chemistry. Guilt compounds grief exponentially. My own example, a professor who so wanted me to continue to study under his tutelage up at Southwestern Seminary, my wife and I so wanted not to drive a thousand miles a week for five or six more years. And Baylor offered a scholarship and, and the rest is history. But when I went to that professor, he tried to talk me out of it. And when he couldn't talk me out of it, he sort of said, it's not going to work for you. You won't like it there. I'd already been there, but he said, you won't like it there. And we sort of left on those terms. First year of graduate school, things were going well. I thought about where does Gideon often, I thought I ought to call him. I ought to tell him things are fine. Thank you for your concern, for your interest. Thank you for all you've done for me, but I'm fine and we're fine. But one day I came home from a run and you remember back when we had answering machines? Isn't it amazing we have to explain to kids now that there used to be these like little tape recorder answering machines? My daughter discovered what a VHS was this week. It was an amazing thing. She tried to put it in backwards. Her brother helped her. You know, she had never, now she's got this whole library of Winnie the Pooh that she never even knew about, you know? And well, there was an answering machine and I, I punched the, the rewind button and heard the voice of a friend of mine say, the funeral will be on Saturday. And my professor was mowing his yard, getting ready for the graduate students to come over to his house for a party. And he fell over and he was gone. And I grieved his death in, in an almost inexplicable way. It was, it was so painful for me that for a period of days, I could not speak. 
And the only relief I found from that grief was in the worship experience there at Southwestern Seminary when I walked into the the rotunda there and walked into that place where we had worshiped and we began to sing, Blessed Assurance, Jesus is Mine. And there was a healing for me. But I realized in retrospect, my grief was so great because my guilt was great because I had never reconciled that relationship. Now imagine Jacob never getting to say goodbye to his mother and feeling somehow that even his departure from her was his own fault because of choices that he had made. Now do you know why it was called Alon Bakus, the oak of weeping? Then he he loses the love of his life. We've seen this in our family, haven't we? Here is Rachel who, you know, their marriage was apocalyptic for him. (laughs) I'm not exaggerating because of all the mess he had been in. When Jacob finally found Rachel in the back of his mind, I think he thought if a woman like her would marry someone like me, I must not be as bad as I think I am. I mean, there must be hope for somebody like me. If the most beautiful woman in this whole part of the world would marry me, I must be okay. I mean, marrying her was in some ways about his identity. It was about his self-image He probably wasn't alone in that. Maybe there are some of us here who are like that. But the truth was that when she couldn't have children, she said, give me sons or I die. Remember her saying that? Give me sons, plural, or I die. She had given him son. He had given her son, Joseph. And then now it's time for the second son, Benjamin, to be born. This should have been such a time of joy. But it became such a time of joy of sorrow. And what are we to make of this, that he puts up the monument that stands the test of time? Isn't that what the text says? That when he put up that pillar, it was there to stay. Why? Because in some ways, losing her was beyond his imagination. And we'll see as we get into the novella about Joseph's life, the next 14 chapters, and we'll look at it in two or three sermons over the next few weeks. I'm... um, We'll preach about Joseph over the next two or three weeks. But what we learn, I think, from this story is the reason he relates to Joseph, the reason he grieves so greatly when Joseph is taken away from him is because in some ways, Joseph and Benjamin have become a representation of their mother to him. That's why he gives Joseph the coat, because he lost his Rachel. That's why he won't send Benjamin, my uh, assistant, uh, Ryan Dennison, was researching this week and just picked this up. He said, you know, um, Jacob is willing to leave Simeon in Egypt forever. Remember that part of the story? He's going to be willing to leave Simeon there forever so he doesn't have to send Benjamin. Why? Because of Rachel. We can't understand this. And, and the, truth, the truth is that the death, these unexpected deaths are the ones that are the most difficult to deal with. I remember when Melanie's mom Um, died in a a bus accident years ago that for a period of time, I don't know how long, I couldn't drive through the streets of Houston and see a bus without crying. So profound was that grief. It was on Valentine's Day of all things. And to watch Jim over these eight years deal graciously. And and he is, I mean, I love the fact that um, his genes are in my kids. I mean, I absolutely love it. But to watch him and to see 
how his life has never been the same. Never been the same. His life would have been inestimably different had she lived. We know that, and he is a great man. But the reality is the more we love, sometimes the harder the death is. And this is the world we live in where we have to deal with death. And how, how do we do it? Whether it's the loss of a child. And some of you have walked that road. Years ago, I called a friend of mine who used to commute those thousand miles a week with me to seminary. And I said, you need to come work with us at Tallowood. He's a pastor up in Oklahoma. He called me back some days later and he said, you know, a couple of years ago, my wife was holding our little girl and she was sick and she was rocking her and my little girl stopped breathing and she died and we buried her in this town. And then he, he asked me a question I couldn't answer. He said, Dwayne, could you leave the town where you buried your daughter? I just sat in silence and grieved with my friend. Sometimes there's nothing to add with words. Sometimes we can't improve on the silence. And so I sat and listened to the heart of my friend and realized he could not join me in ministry because the loss in his life was so great he could not leave it behind. I sat with a family in intensive care, waiting, keeping vigil while their 18-year-old son battled against spinal meningitis and ultimately lost that battle and And hearing this wife say to me, I can't imagine life without my son, but I tell you, pastor, what would be worse? What would happen if I lost my husband who comforts me now? I just couldn't live without him. I called them just the other day. It's been 20-something years, but we're bonded by that experience. And just to say, how's Jimmy? How are you, Betsy? The reality for us is these losses are, are, are more than we can imagine, more than we can bear. And the unexpected death, I think, is perhaps the hardest for us to deal with. I hear it in the words of Dennis Rainey in a book called Stepping Up, where he tells about his granddaughter, Molly, who lived seven days, and about the funeral, and about his wife and he going over to England to, to St. Burian years ago in the southwestern part of England, a a little cemetery and finding inscribed on a 16th century um, gravestone the story of a family, a, a wife who died at the age of 24 in childbirth, a baby who died 13 months later, and a husband who died 10 days after that at the age of 25. And on that tombstone were inscribed these words, we commit, Lord, we cannot, Lord, thy purpose see. We cannot, Lord, thy purpose see. But all is well that is done by thee. And they inscribed those words on the tombstone of their granddaughter, Molly. I come to you this morning saying there's much we don't understand. Here at the end of the story is is Isaac who dies at the age of 180 That is a long life, isn't it? Full of years. We marvel when somebody makes it to 80 or to 90. Sometimes there's a hundredth birthday in our midst, but 180 years. He outlives his father, Abraham. Who could do that? But he did. And then he goes away. Now, does anybody remember this, that that when Jacob stole the blessing, Isaac's posture was prone in the bed saying, I'm about to die and I want to eat one good meal before I die. And so he sends Esau out and Jacob goes and prepares. Remember the story. 
And some people always think they're about to die. And maybe Isaac was one of those who thought, just any minute now, I have a family member who, who lost her parents when she was very young, when they were very young. Her siblings both died in their 50s. In the back of her mind, 60 was like the, the end point of her life. It was the finish line. But here she is now, 11 or 12 years later, has outlived all of her family. And she always thought she wouldn't make it to that age. And then we find in this story that Isaac passes away and and is gathered to his people. It says it's a beautiful expression used of Abraham as well. Truth truth told, um, death is inevitable, isn't it? It's, It's inescapable. And we never think about it, but there comes a time when people are a certain age that we realize, you know, it could happen. I always think my parents are immortal, but couple months ago, mom had a a surgery. I think I told you about it. And I got a phone call and my little brother said, mom's heart stopped today. She was in her room after the surgery and her heart stopped beating and they found her and they revived her and she's okay now. We think she's going to be okay. My dad, for heaven's sake, used to be a, a race car driver. He still thinks life is about riding four wheelers. His dream in life is for all of his grandkids to come up and ride four wheelers with him. And This week, my little brother who lives here in Houston with his three kids was up there. My dad was backing a four-wheeler off a trailer and uh, kicked the ramp off with the tire. It flipped over. He fell down hard to the ground, broke a couple of ribs, bruised his lung, bruised his pancreas. I'm on my way to Waco. I called him. I said, Dad, I'll just turn around and get on a plane to Colorado if you want me to come. He said, I've been hurt worse than a fist fight, son. (laughs) Take your word for that, Dad. But I'm curious, how did the other guy do in that? I, I think I know. I think I already know. Um, and I just, you know, he's tougher than a boot. You know, he really is. But he's not immortal. None of us is. Um, and, and it seems like these deaths that are expected, anticipated deaths, sometimes can be healing for a family, can actually bring families together. Notice it's Jacob and Esau, just like it was Isaac and Ishmael who buried Abraham. It's Jacob and Esau who bury Isaac. Isn't that interesting? These brothers who have healed their relationship come together in this. And I've noticed that burying a parent can be a time of healing in a family or it can be a time of deep division. And I just want to say that the time when you bury a parent, that's a good time to bury the hatchet. Just while you're burying your parent, just throw the hatchet in and, and don't let that be a source of division. My friend John Wheat called me this week. He and his two brothers are all ministers here in Texas. Robert, his little brother, used to be our youth minister. We named our first dog after him, so he's always had a special place in my heart. <laughs> I said, how's Robert doing? Oh, he's doing good. He said, our dad died in April. He said, we're all three preachers and we couldn't figure out how, you know, how do you know who's going to preach the funeral? We didn't know whether to flip a coin, you know, cast lots, you know, get biblical about me. What do you do? Throw holy dice. I mean, how do you, how do you find out? And finally we just decided whoever comes to that funeral is going to hear three sermons. So they all preached all with their own window into their dad. And he said, you know, the thing that comforts us, Dwayne, he said, it'll sound funny for a preacher to say this, but the thing that comforts us is we know where he is. We always knew where he was going to go. He was a music minister who had three sons who were preachers. We always knew where, but he said, you know, it's so comforting now. That's what came to us when, when Melanie's mother died. First of all, profound gratitude. We got to live life with her. <laughs> what a gift. 
And second, what you believe really matters. Because Paul will say in in Thessalonians, some people grieve like they have no hope. And some people grieve with hope. Some hopelessly, some hopefully. How does your family grieve? I've been to funerals where people did it in different ways. Some hopelessly that they in their minds thought I will never see this person again. I can't, I can't close the casket. I can't leave the graveside. I'm never going to see this person again, hopelessly. But Paul says in first Thessalonians four thirteen, I don't want you to be ignorant about this. I don't want you to be unknowing about those who sleep. Isn't that a beautiful image of death? Because if you sleep, then you wake up <laughs> and he says, I don't want you to be ignorant about this. Because um, I don't want you to grieve like those who have. We grieve, he says, but not like those who have no hope. We grieve. Hopefully we grieve. We don't deny death. We of all people should not deny the reality of death. Truth should not. Truth, good or bad, should not frighten the church. We, We ought to be able to deal with the reality, not in denial. In fact, in some ways, because we know the end of the story, we don't deny death, but we defy death to do its worst. It's true. I mean, the, the, you look at the statistics of people who are born who actually die, and it's, it's almost 100%. I mean, with the exception of Elijah and, and Enoch, I mean, it's, 100, it's 99 point a whole bunch of percent. So it's a reality. But listen to what he says. Well, how can he say we grieve? We don't grieve the way those who have no hope. Well, here's what he says. Because he died. Our God has experienced our death. He, he didn't swoon on the cross. He died. It, Jer, Jerry Clower would say he was graveyard dead. I mean, he was dead. He didn't like, you know, get in the cool atmosphere of the tomb and feel a little bit better. No, he was dead. But he also, Jesus not only experienced our death, but if you will receive it in the resurrection, he evacuated death of its power. So we we say sooner or later, death defeats us all. But the good news is our Savior has defeated death once and for all. And he has overcome it through the resurrection. And that faith profoundly changes the way we grieve because we know that the loved ones we have lost in the Lord who are asleep in him are with him. They have to be with him. If he's going to bring them with him, then they must be with him, right? They're with him. And the promise is that we wake, as John Donne said, death, be not proud, though some think you're mighty and dreadful, for you are not so. And the ones you think you overthrow die not, poor death, nor yet can you kill me. One short sleep past, we wake eternally, and death shall die. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your amazing grace and love, transforming power in our lives Father, I pray for those in this room who are dealing with death right now, the recent loss of a loved one, the anticipated loss, or Lord, like so many of us, sometimes we are blindsided and we don't know when it's coming, Lord, but we know it is coming. And so, Lord, I pray that you would transform our our sorrow into joy as we realize your profound power because you experienced our death and then you overcame death through the resurrection. Lord, we believe that you are able to give us life. So Father, I pray for our families that you would help us to be open and to talk in real terms about death and then Father, to to tell the truth that for the believer in Christ, death is not the end. 
and comfort us with that hope, we pray today. I ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.